0: All right, let's talk about Tom Stoppard's play, Arcadia. Uh, we open up, there's one, just one set for the entire play. It's this room in this uh, great English manor house. And we open up, we see Thomasina, who's a 13-year-old girl, and her tutor, Septimus Hodge. And the opening line is, Septimus, what is carnal embrace? Now, that line always gets a laugh in the theater, because you've got a 13-year-old girl asking about this, and he comes up with a very funny answer. It's the practice of throwing one's arm around a side of beef. Is that all? No. a Shoulder of mutton, a haunch of venison, well-hugged, an embrace of grouse, caro, carnis, feminine, flesh. Is it a sin? "'Not necessarily, my lady, but when carnal embrace is sinful, it is a sin of the flesh. "'Q.E.D. "'We had caro in our Gallic Wars. "'The Britons lived on milk and meat. "'Lacte et carne vivante. "'I am sorry that that seed fell on stony ground.' "'That was the sin of Onan, wasn't it, Septimus? "'Yes, he was giving his brother's wife a Latin lesson, "'and she was hardly the wiser after it than before. "'I thought you were finding a proof of Fermont's last theorem.' Now one thing a couple of things to point out first of all th- this dialogue is so quick and so witty there are a lot of jokes going on here and uh, kind of uh, uh, it also kind of assumes in the audience uh, at least uh, a passing knowledge with with latin uh with the bible uh with mathematics uh it kind of uh, it assumes an intelligent audience though if you pay attention, it explains most of the the jokes as you go along. Uh, But also notice that we've introduced Carnal Embrace, uh, Fermat's Last Theorem, and just a few lines down Mr. Chatter's poem. Those are three of the main thematic threads that will run through the whole play. Uh, The reason that Uh, Septimus wanted her to prove Fermat's last theorem, was he wanted time to finish reading this horrible poem that Mr. Chatter has written, that he's going to be writing, called The Couch of Eros, that he's going to be writing a review of. But also, just from this opening question, you can see that this is a play about about knowledge, about learning things. Uh, It's a teacher and student And we find out that the rumor has been going around that Mrs. Chatter was in the gazebo in Carnal Embrace. And we also see that Thomasina is a very clever girl indeed. Uh, She calls him out on 2882, I think you have not been candid with me, Septimus. A gazebo is not, after all, a meat loiter. I never said my definition was complete. Is Carnal Embrace kissing? Yes. And throwing one's arms around Mrs. Chatter? Yes. Now, Fermat's Last Theorem, I thought as much, I hope you are ashamed. I, my lady, if you do not teach me the true meaning of things, who will? Ah, yes, I I am ashamed. Now, there's this moment, and this happens again and again and again in this play, that people talk a little bit past each other. When as, as Thomasina says, I hope you are ashamed... Well, Septimus was, though Thomasine doesn't realize this yet, Septimus was the one who was in Carnal Embrace with Mrs. Chatter in the gazebo, and so he's kind of caught off guard. I, my lady, why ashamed? Oh, who, me? Um, and But she says, oh, ashamed because you didn't tell me the true meaning of things. And he says, I am ashamed. So then he, he uh, assumes his role as tutor. Carnal Embrace is sexual congress which is the insertion of the male genital organ into the female genital organ for purposes of procreation and pleasure. Fermat's last theorem, by contrast, asserts that when x, y, and z are whole numbers, each raised to the power of n, the sum of the first two can never equal the third when n is greater than 2 and Thomasina replies ugh so, nevertheless that is the theorem it is disgusting and incomprehensible now when i am grown to practice it myself i shall never do so without thinking of you thank you very much my lady um, so here again kind of talking at cross purposes and here again we and throughout the play the 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 emotional and sexual uh, gets mixed up with the intellectual and mathematical and scientific Uh, He gives definitions of carnal embrace and Fermat's Last Theorem. Uh, Thomasina is revolted by it, and uh, he says, nonetheless, that is the theorem. Of course, she's not revolted by the theorem, but by the idea of carnal embrace. And notice uh, Thomasina's insight starts at the bottom of 2883. She talks about stirring the rice pudding. Uh, Sometimes... "'The the spoonful of jam spreads itself round, making red trails like the picture of a meteor in my astronomical atlas. "'But if you stir backward, the jam will not come together again. "'Indeed, the pudding does not notice and continues to turn pink, just as before. "'Do you think this is odd?' "'No.' "'Well, I do. You cannot stir things apart.' No more you can. Time must needs run backwards. And since it will not, we must stir our way onward, mixing as we go, disorder out of disorder into disorder, until pink is complete, unchanging, and unchangeable. And we are all done with it forever. Um, So this is, as your footnote tells you, this is essentially the second law of thermodynamics, though they don't quite realize it. And he draws attention at this point to the tortoise, that is on his desk. This would become an important plot element, uh, and we'll see it in, in both timelines in the story. Um, but then Thomasina says, um, Septimus, do you think God is a Newtonian? That is, somebody who follows the law, the uh, the laws of Newton's motion. An Etonian, almost certainly, I am afraid. Uh, we must ask your brother to make it his first inquiry. No, Septimus, a Newtonian. Septimus, am I the first person to have thought of this? No. And that in itself is interesting. Are you the first person to think of this? No. It's all been thought before. He um, says, I have not said yet. So he says, if everything from the furthest planet to the smallest atoms of your brain acts according to Newton's law of motion, what becomes a free will? No. God's will? No. Sin? No! Very well. If you could stop every atom in its position and direction, and if your mind could comprehend all the actions thus suspended, then if you were really, really good at algebra, you could write the formula for all of the future. And although nobody can be so clever as to do it, the formula must exist, just as if one could. Yes, yes, as far as I know, you are the first person to have thought of this. So again, this is a this is a, a very sophisticated thought for a thirteen year old girl or thirteen year old boy, for that matter, to have. Um, but she's thinking about the idea of predestination and free will, uh, the idea if you if you could write the formula for, it, it, she's related to the ideas he was talking about, about free will, God's will, sin, all that is related, but she's thinking about it not in, in moral terms, but in purely mathematical terms, that the future, if everything obeys Newton's laws, could be written if you just knew the positions. Again, the idea of knowing and needing to needing to have that knowledge. Then she looks at Fermont's Last Theorem and says... The answer is perfectly obvious. Uh, this time you may have overreached yourself. Now Fermat's Last Theorem is a famously difficult mathematical problem. At the time this was written, there had no one had come up with a proof. It was any any numbers you plugged into it would work, but you know mathematic mathematicians need something more than that. They need a, a geometrically solid proof, uh, and they hadn't in, invented one yet now uh, some years after this play came out uh, th- they did come up with a very complicated and abstract proof of the theorem but at this point it was uh, uh it was unproven though in his uh as uh, as it says in he had written in this notes in the margin saying that he had had, had a proof there but it was you know he didn't have space to write it all out but now Thomasina thinks she has has solved it, but in a very creative, innovative way. What she says is, the bottom of uh, 2884, "...there is no proof, Septimus. The thing that is perfectly obvious is that the note in the margin was a joke to make you all mad." So she says, oh, well, he was, he was just making a joke. Now, that's a very clever, very innovative solution to the problem. Uh, again, it shows the, both how intelligent and how creative Thomasina is. Now, next we get the confrontation between uh, Mr. Chatter and Septimus. Uh, Mr. Chatter says, at the top of 2885, you insulted my wife in the gazebo yesterday evening. You are mistaken. I made love to your wife in the gazebo. She asked me to meet her there. I have her note somewhere, I dare say. I could find it for you. And if someone is putting it out that I did not turn up, by God, it sir it is a slander. You damned lecher. Um, again, kind of willfully misconstruing what he says. Um, so, notice how deftly Septimus handles this. He, he owns up to it, uh, but he very quickly... Uh, gets to the idea that uh, he, he wouldn't want to be in a duel with Chatter because Chatter's such a great poet. Now, he's already told us and told Thomasina that he thinks that Chatter is a horrible poet and he can't believe and he's going to write a bad review of him. Um, and, uh, you know, Chatter says, I will not be flattered out of my course. You, you say so, do you? you? You say I'm a good poet? Uh, so he is flattering him out of his course. And it turns out that Septimus is going to write a review of Chatter's most recent poem, The Couch of Eros, to which Chatter asks, did Mrs. Chatter know of this before she, before you, I think she very likely did there is nothing that woman would not do for me. Now, this is, of course, completely irrelevant to the, the whole point. Uh, Mrs. Chatter slept with Septimus because she wanted to sleep with him, but uh, Chatter can now uh, make it okay in his mind because he's going to pretend that uh, it was it, she did it too, uh, so that uh, Septimus would write a good review of his poem. And in fact, he writes a very nice inscription in the volume of poetry to my friend Septimus Hodge, who stood up and gave his best on behalf of the author. Uh, That's an interesting innuendo there. But now in come Lady Crome, the lady of the house, and her brother, Captain Edward Bryce. And she enters saying, oh no, not the gazebo. Now, again, this is a great laugh line because uh, we think that they're talking about the carnal embrace in the gazebo. Um, Mr. Noakes, what is this I hear? Not only the gazebo, but the boathouse, the Chinese bridge, the shrubbery. By God, sir, not possible. Chatter thinks that they've had, they're saying that uh, uh, Septimus and Mrs. Chatter had sex in all those places. Uh, Mr. Noakes will have it so. Mr. Noakes, this is monstrous. I'm glad to hear it from you, Mr. Hodge, Lady Croom says. Now, again, we quickly discover that we've got another miscommunication. Uh, Septimus and Chatter think that they're talking about carnal embrace, but what they're actually talking about are these plans to change the, uh, the landscape of their garden. Um, you know, when they say it is rape, uh, Bryce means it metaphorically, but... Uh, uh, chatter, and Septimus think that they're talking literally. Uh, And Septimus says at the top of 2888, Madam... I regret the gazebo, sincerely regret the gazebo and the boathouse to, to a point, but the Chinese bridge, fantasy, and the shrubbery—I reject with contempt. <laughs> so we say, "Oh yeah, we did it in the gazebo and yeah in the um, in the boathouse, but uh, the other places that just made up." But Thomasina, of course, uh, cues him in that they're not talking about carnal embrace. But of course, she used that word, and, and she says she knows everything about carnal embrace, which upsets her uh, her mother, Lady Croom. Um, and also Bryce, who says, as her tutor, you have a duty to keep her in ignorance, which is a line that's almost worthy of Oscar Wilde. Uh, but again, Thomasina is very quick. She makes out that she thinks carnal embrace is embracing a side of beef. And so they let her stay. And we get this... Um, This debate about the garden, and there's this book that that has these uh, uh, illustrations where you see the garden, and then you have overlays and see what it will look like when it goes from being this classical, regular garden to this romantic, wild garden. Um, As as it says on the top of twenty-eight eighty-nine. currently it has the familiar pastoral refinement of an English garden. And Lady Croom asks, pray, what is this rustic hovel that presumes to superpose itself on my gazebo? That is the hermitage, madam. I'm bewildered. It is all irregular, Mr. Noakes. It is, sir. Irregularity is one of the chief principles of the picaresque style. Uh, So we're moving from a kind of a classical style to a picaresque style, and Lady Crume is having none of it. Sidley Park is already a picture, and a most amiable picture, too. The slopes are green and gentle. The trees are companionably grouped at intervals that show them to advantage. The rill is uh, is a serpentine ribbon unwound from the lake, peaceably contained by meadows, on which the right amount of sheep are tastefully arranged. In short, it is nature as God intended, and I can say with the painter, Et in Arcadia ego, here I am in Arcadia. Uh, now, again, she has this picture, this nature's God intended it. It's kind of ironic, since this is a very artificial kind of environment. Um, and she, her Latin, here I am in Arcadia, is what she's saying. This is paradise. Here I am in paradise. Um, and, and Thomasina says, yes, ma'am, if you would have it so. Is she correcting my taste or my translation? Neither are beyond correction, Mamma. But it was your geography caused the doubt. She says you're not actually in Arcadia. Arcadia is in in Greece. Uh, again, she's she's very quick. Um, but so we end this opening scene. Uh, we hear off stage the sounds of a, a gun, and uh, they mention that uh, uh, Septimus's friend is out hunting, and we end the scene back again with Septimus and Thomasina, and. Septimus gives the proper uh, Latin translation, even in Arcadia, there am I. Oh, fui to death. So the, uh, uh, Lady Croom has completely misconstrued that Latin quotation. She's saying, oh, here I am in Arcadia, in this paradise. What it actually means, that the original context, is that it's death saying, even in Arcadia, even a perfect place, death is still there. Uh, So it's almost the opposite of what uh, Lady Croom thought. And again, these kinds of reversals and misunderstandings are central to both the the plot and the themes of Arcadia. Now, Thomasina makes a little addition to the the, uh, landscape book. She says, "'I will put in a hermit. For what is a hermitage without a hermit? Are you in love with my mother Septimus? You must not be cleverer than your elders. It is not polite.' Am I cleverer? Yes, much. Well, I am sorry, Septimus. Uh, Again, she's very perceptive, and it will turn out that she's quite right about uh, this—that Septimus is in love with Lady Croom. So now the scene changes, and once you know Septimus and Thomasina leave the stage, and in comes Hannah Jarvis. Now. The only thing that lets us know its present day is the way she 's stressed she 's stressed is in contemporary clothes she 's in the same place, but we 're in a different time uh, and uh, all of the as the the stage directions tell you all of the kind of objects on the table which will kind of accumulate as the place goes on is, are still there um. Now we meet uh, so a whole new set of characters. We've got Hannah Jarvis who is researching the uh, the estate. Chloe and Valentine are brother and sister and they're part of the family that owns the estate and we have Bernard who is another academic here and uh, uh, Chloe tells Bernard on page uh, uh, 2891 that uh, uh, Hannah is writing a history of the garden. Okay, so now the the play is kind of doubling back on itself. We we heard in the first scene the changes that happened in the garden. Now in the present day, uh, or actually in the 1990s when this was written, uh, we have a woman who's writing a history of the garden, and we also meet a, a third sibling of the family who's only fifteen. Is Gus, but he never speaks. He he's uh, uh, he comes in and, and leaves, but uh, we don't really learn a lot about him. Uh, notice uh, again the the play points out some of the the similarities between the the time periods. Uh, there's a tortoise on the table. Uh, who, and his name, Valentine's pet turtle, or tortoise, and named Lightning, uh, a nicely ironic name for a tortoise. Now, actually, you know, given the fact that tortoises live quite a long time, that could literally be the same tortoise that was there in the opening scene. And we find out, notice too, that, uh, Bernard doesn't want Chloe to tell Hannah what his real name is. He's kind of keeping that a secret. Uh, that we find out from there, discussions, their their dialogue, that uh, Hannah has written a book on Caroline Lamb, who was the mistress of Lord Byron. And Bernard praises her for that on 80, 2895. Uh, he says, to rehabilitate a forgotten writer, I suppose you could say that's the main reason for an English Dawn, Not to teach? Good God, no. Let the brats sort it out for themselves. Anyway, many congratulations. Again, a very different attitude towards education and teaching. Uh, but Bernard is interested in Ezra Chatter, uh, and he wants to get Hannah, who has been doing research here, to help him find out more about him. Um, and he gets the the inscription uh, that we've seen made in the, in the first scene, to my friend Septimus Hodge, who stood up and gave his best on behalf of the author. And, and notice, he says at the bottom of twenty eight ninety five, that the only other chatter uh, that he found in that period in the um, uh, in the, the database was a uh, he was a yes, but he wasn't a poet like our Ezra. He was a botanist who described a dwarf dahlia in Martinique and died thereafter being bit by a monkey. <laughs> That's a great uh, A great he died after being bit by a monkey. And Ezra Chatter. Uh, well, he's interested in finding out about him. And, of course, this scene has another misunderstanding. This one is is engineered by Bernard by not telling his name. Eventually, uh, Chloe comes in and uh, mentions it and uh, lets Hannah know that this is a man who wrote a very scathingly negative review of her book. Uh, that he's just praised. Now notice how that is an exact echo of the situation in the first scene, where Septimus is writing a very negative review of Chatter's poem. And we find out that the book that Hannah is writing is about the Sidley hermit. Uh, He's at the top of 2898. He's my peg for the nervous breakdown of the romantic imagination. Uh, I'm doing Landscape and Literature, 1750 to 1834. What happened in 1834? My hermit died. Of course. What do you mean, of course? Nothing. Yes, you do. No, no. However, Coleridge also died in 1834. So he did. What a stroke of luck. Thank you, Bernard. Uh, so there's this little moment where they're actually helping each other out uh, but this sidley hermit we've seen the sidley hermit is just something that uh, thomas cena invented and drew in there in fact the, the look at that she shows him the the sketchbook that noakes had for the guard, for uh, changing the landscape of the garden and calls it the only known likeness of the sidley hermit uh, which is again very funny because it's just something that uh, thomas cena made up and Hannah is also commenting on the transformation of the garden and what it means thematically and symbolically, the before and after. This is how it all looked until, say, 1810. Smooth, undulating, serpentine, open water, clumps of trees, classical boathouse. Lovely. The real England. You can stop being silly now, Bernard. English landscape was invented by gardeners imitating foreign painters who were evoking classical authors. Um, again, that's, that's, it's, it's, again, it's not God nature as God intended, the way Lady Croom said, it's an invention as much as anything else. The whole thing was brought home in the, in the baggage from the Grand Tour. Here, look. Capability Brown doing Claude, who was doing Virgil. Arcadia. And here, superimposed by Richard Noakes, Untamed nature in the style of Salvador Rosa. It's the Gothic novel expressed in landscape, everything but vampires. So, this is a, a change from kind of the uh, 18th century rationality to the 19th century romantic uh, irregularity and feeling and Gothic and all of that. And we've seen in the first scene the Change actually taking place, and here are the historians and literary uh, scholars looking back on it from our current perspective. And Hannah says at the bottom of 2899 the hermit was placed in the landscape exactly as one might place a pottery gnome, and there he lived out his life as a garden ornament. Did he do anything? Oh, he was very busy. When he died, the cottage was stacked solid with paper, hundreds of pages, thousands. Peacock says he was suspected of genius. It turned out, of course, that he was off his head. He'd covered every sheet with cabalistic proofs that the world was coming to an end. It's perfect, isn't it? Isn't it? A perfect symbol, I mean? Oh yes. Of what? The whole romantic sham, Bernard. It's what happened to the English and to the Enlightenment, isn't it? A century of intellectual rigor turned in on itself. Um so uh, she's seeing this as a, a decline. Again, there was paradise in the age of reason, uh, and then Richard Noakes came in to bring God up to date, uh, the decline from thinking to feeling. So that's the way that Hannah sees it. And it turns out that there really is a, uh, she has this historical information about a real Sidley hermit, that it's not just the, uh, the, the little drawing that Thomasina did on, in the book, now, it turns out that all the the papers that the Sidley Hornet wrote on these cabalistic proofs was burned. They, they made a bonfire of it. But then uh, uh, in, in 2900, Bernard asks if you come across Byron at all, because Bernard has found a copy of Mr. Chatter's poem, The Couch of Eros, in Byron's library, in his books. And as he says, the top of 29 or 2, a number of passages have been underlined, all of them and only them. No, no, look at me, not at the book. All the underlined passages, word for word, were used as quotations in the review of the Couch of Eros in the Piccadilly Recreation of April 30th, 1809. The reviewer begins by drawing attention to his previous notice in the same periodical of The Maid of Turkey. The reviewer is obviously Hodge, my friend Septimus Hodge, who stood up and gave his best on behalf of the author. That's the point. The Piccadilly ridiculed both books. Uh, So he thinks that the author of those reviews has to be Byron. And notice Hannah makes the assumption, turns out correctly, that it was Septimus Hodge who wrote them. Uh, but then Bernard says, Yeah, but they're not nice reviews. Why would he write a nice thing in the book to somebody who was trashing his book? He um, says there are three documents that were survived in the book, three little letters. We've already seen a couple of them. Uh this is the middle of twenty nine oh two. Sir, we have a matter to settle. I wait you in I wait on you in the gun room. E. Chatter Esquire My husband was sent to town for pistols. Deny what cannot be proven for charity's sake. I keep my room this day. Unsigned. Sidley Park, April 11th, 1809. Sir, I call you a liar, a lecher, a slanderer, and the the press of a a thief of my honor. I wait upon your arrangements for giving me satisfaction as a man and as a poet. E. Chatter Esquire. So the first one we we saw was the note that Chatter wanted to meet with uh, Septimus. The second one is from Mrs. Chatter, though it's unsigned. And the third one we haven't seen yet, but it sounds like that uh, Chatter is calling out Septimus and wants to have a duel with him. But because Bernard found this book in Byron's library, he believes that Byron killed Chatter. And they said, well, there's no... There's no idea that uh, Byron was ever even here, uh, and again, uh, we we didn't see any Byron in that first scene, so we're kind of on Hannah's side at this point. Now it's going to turn out that uh, it is actually true that uh, Byron is there. He was a, a school friend of Septimus Hodge. They went to the same school together, same college together. Notice just the, at the end of the second scene, Chloe says to Hannah. "'My genius brother will be much relieved. "'He's in love with you. "'I suppose you know.' "'That's a joke.' "'She's thinking about the way Valentine calls her fiancé, "'though they're not really interested in each other. "'It's not a joke to him. "'Of course it is. "'Not even a joke. "'How can you be so ridiculous?' "'Gus enters from the garden "'in his customary silent awkwardness. "'Hello, Gus. "'What have you got?' "'Gus has an apple. "'Just picked.' With a leaf or two still attached, he offers the apple to Hannah. Oh, thank you. Chloe, leaving, says, told you. Thank you. Oh, dear. So it turns out that it's not the Valentine. Again, a misunderstanding. It wasn't Valentine she was talking about. It was Gus. Gus has a crush on Hannah, and he gives her an apple. Now of course the apple is wonderfully symbolic. We've got the apple, the 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 fall, the Garden of Eden. Uh, it also relates to Newton. Uh, there's the the apocryphal story that Newton got the idea for his laws of motion when he saw an apple falling from a tree. Uh, and so the, the the notice that the the apple kind of brings together both the kind of scientific and the Uh, The ideas about fate and free will, and the ideas about carnal carnal embrace and and, uh, sins of the flesh, all of that kind of comes together in that one little symbolic gesture where he gives Hannah the apple. Now, scene three, we're back in the past, back in the 1800s, and again, a lesson with Septimus and Thomasina. This time, she's doing a a translation from Latin into English. Uh, but also she's trying to figure out who it who it's about. But she mentions Lord Byron, and she says, uh, Mama is in love with Lord Byron. Yes? Nonsense. Uh, it is not nonsense. I saw them together in the gazebo. Uh, Lord Byron was reading to her from his satire, and Mama was laughing with her head in her best position. So Thomasina doesn't miss much. She's very perceptive, but she has another uh insight in the middle of 2906. Uh, She's talking about geometry. Each week I plot your equations dot for dot, as uh, X's against Y's in all manner of algebraic relation, and every week they draw themselves as commonplace geometry, as if the world of forms were nothing but arcs and angles. God's truth, Septimus. If there is an equation for a curve like a bell, there must be an equation for one like a blue bell, and if a bluebell, why not a rose? Do we believe nature is written in numbers? We do. Why, then your equations only describe the shape, why do your uh, equations only describe the shapes of manufacture? I do not know. So she's impatient with geom- She points out that all this algebra and geometry, it, it, it doesn't describe the the irregularity of the real world. Um, and uh, Thomas Cena says, we uh, you know, we... Uh, we must work outward from the middle of the maze. We will start with something simple. She picks up the apple leaf. This is the apple that uh, Hannah got from uh, uh, from Gus that was left on the table and is now picked up by uh, Thomasina in the earlier time period. So I will plot this leaf and deduce its equation. You will be famous for being my tutor when Lord Byron is dead and forgotten. That's a wonderfully ironic line because, of course, exactly the opposite is true. Uh, And it turns out that the passage she's translating from Latin is about Cleopatra. She hates Cleopatra. Everything is turned to love with her. Um, She says, The Egyptian noodle made carnal embrace with the enemy who burned the great library of Alexandria without so much as a fine for all that is overdue. Oh, Septimus, can you bear it? All the lost plays of the Athenians... Two hundred at least by Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, thousands of poems. Aristotle's own library brought to Egypt by the noodles' ancestors. How can we sleep for grief? And she's talking about this is this actually happened. The the Library of Alexandria was famous in the ancient world. It was the you know the great repository of of knowledge, and it was burned down when we, we lost uh, th- th- those were the only copies that existed uh, of the things that we, we can't recover. As she says, plays by uh, Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides, uh, works by Aristotle. But notice what Septimus says about it. We shed as we pick up, like travelers who must carry everything in their arms, and what we let fall will be picked up by those behind. The procession is very long and life is very short." We die on the march, but there is nothing outside the march, so nothing can be lost to it. The missing plays of Sophocles will be turned up piece by piece, or be written again in another language. Ancient cures for diseases will reveal themselves once more. Mathematical discoveries, glimpsed and lost to view, will have their time again. You do not suppose, my lady, that if all of Archimedes had been hiding in the great library of Alexandria, we would be at a loss for a corkscrew. So he's has a very kind of sanguine uh, attitude about this, that the kind of inevitability of progress. Uh, notice this is the opposite of what Thomasina said about stirring your rice pudding. You can't stir it backwards. Uh, he's seeming to suggest that you can that you know, all of those lost things will be recovered. Um, it's two very different attitudes about things. Now, we also discover in this scene how Byron came to be in possession of uh, Septimus's copy of The Couch of Eros. Lady Croom wants to give it to him. She kind of sweeps in and, and uh, uh, takes it. This is on page 2909. Uh, so now we we've, we've set up there's going to be this duel between Septimus and Chatter. Chatter has uh learned that uh, Septimus wrote that first bad review about his book. So notice that we are able to put together the pieces of what's happened here in a way that the people in the present simply can't. They don't have all the information. We get to see these events unfold and understand why they happened, but we also understand how the people in the present uh, would misunderstand them. Now scene four we're back in the, our, our present uh, day period, and we have Hannah and Valentine. Hannah is reading something that Thomasina wrote in the margins of her mathematics textbook. I, Thomasina Coverley, have found a truly wonderful method whereby all the forms of nature must give up their numerical secrets and draw themselves through number alone. This margin being too mean for my purpose, the reader must look elsewhere for the new geometry of irregular forms discovered by Thomasina Coverley. Uh, and we hear this piano playing. Now, we heard a piano in the previous scene. Uh, this is another one of these ways that the, the, the past and the present are linked together by these various motifs. Uh, and... Hannah is asking Valentine. Valentine's a biologist, and he's doing a mathematical study of the population of grouse on the, uh, the on his estate. Um, and she's looking, you know, what does this mean? asks him. He says, "Well, it's an iterated algorithm. What's that? Well, it's Jesus. It's an algorithm that's been." Iterated. How, you know, how How do you explain it? Uh, he says she's, she's feeding the solutions back into the equation and then solving them again. Iteration. Uh, so you get one number and you feed that number back into the equation and you do that thousands and thousands of times. Uh, and, and that's how you, you know, that's an iterated algorithm. Um, he says, it's the technique I'm using for my grouse. And look what Valentine says at the, at the bottom of 2911. When your Thomasina was doing maths, it had been the same maths for a couple thousand years. Classical. And for a century after Thomasina. Then maths left the real world behind, just like modern art, really. Nature was classical. Uh, was classical. Maths was suddenly Picasso. But now nature is having the last laugh. The freaky stuff is turning out to be the mathematics of the natural world. Uh, Now notice that this is a parallel with the change in the garden from the classical landscape to the irregular romantic landscape. He's saying math had a similar translation. It was classical, it was Newtonian, and then suddenly it became chaotic and modern, like Picasso. Uh, So we're seeing again these thematic uh, uh, correspondences in the the play. And Valentine says that he and... uh, Thomasina are essentially doing the same thing from two different points of view. The top of 2912, she started with an equation and turned it into a graph. I've got a graph, real data, and I'm trying to find the equation which would give you the graph if you used it used it the way she's used hers, iterated it. Um, so... This is almost literally showing how the, the two time periods are mirroring one another. And what uh, Valentine's talking about is, is uh, chaos theory, uh, the mathematics, these iterated algorithms are a way of describing the irregularities of nature in a mathematical way that is radically different from the Newtonian mathematics that Thomasina was complaining about. But it's very difficult for Valentine to find the right equation. He says it's like a piano in the next room. It's playing your song, but unfortunately it's out of whack. Some of the strings are missing, and the pianist is tone-deaf and drunk. I mean, the noise, impossible. Uh, so this idea of, of trying to discover the, the the truth through the noise, well, that's what, in, in their very different ways, that's what Hannah... And uh Bernard are trying to do in in historical terms finding out about the past, and Valentine is doing it in mathematical terms this scientific exploration is also kind of groping towards the truth in the same way that the uh the, the scholars are but of course, Valentine can't believe that. Thomasina could have discovered this new modern mathematics. Uh, he says, not a schoolgirl in a country house in Derbyshire in 18 something. Um, he says, you know, she was just playing with numbers. And near the bottom of 2913, uh, Valentine gives a very eloquent explanation of the, the, cha- the chaos theory mathematics that he's doing as he says, the unpredictable and the predetermined fold together to make everything the way it is. Uh, he says that the, the, uh, the physics, of uh, classical Newtonian world, only explain the very big and the very small, the universe, the elementary particles. The ordinary-sized stuff, which is our lives, the things which people write poetry about, Clouds, daffodils, waterfalls, and what happens in a cup of coffee when the cream goes in. Those things are full of mystery, as mysterious as to us as the heavens were to the Greeks. Uh, now notice, uh, this is, he's talking in scientific and mathematical terms, but it's a very poetic, uh, too, that these ordinary things in our lives aren't described by the mathematics. Those are things of mystery, Um, And as he says at the top of 2914, uh, the future is disorder. A door like this has cracked open five or six times since we got up on our hind legs. It's the best time to be alive when almost everything you thought you knew is wrong. And he loves that idea that we don't know what we're doing. He's very different. Bernard is somebody who is very certain uh, Valentine is somebody who is always kind of groping and unsure. Uh, and those are two very different, ironically, uh, you would, might think that the, the scientist would be the one who was very sure of himself and the the uh, uh, literary scholar, historian would be the one who was groping, but it's exactly the opposite. And Hannah and Bernard are piecing together the evidence uh, at the top of 2915 um, Lady Croom writing from London to her husband. Her brother, Captain Bryce, married a Mrs. Chatter. In other words, one might assume a widow. Ah, so Captain Bryce is going to marry Mrs. Chatter. Well, obviously, that means Mr. Chatter had to be dead. So that supports uh, Bernard's theory. And then they're talking about, you know, there's no proof that Byron was here. And at the bottom of 2915, uh-oh, Valentine says, "Are you talking about Lord Byron, the poet?" No, you fucking idiot! Are we talking about Lord Byron, the chartered accountant? Oh well, he was here all right, the poet. How do you know? He's in the game book. I think he shot a hare. I read through the whole lot once when I had mumps. Some quite interesting people. Um, so now here's this piece of evidence in the game book. Now, a game book is uh, on an estate like this. They would keep records of who shot what and you know when. And that's actually what Valentine has been using to try to track the grouse population and show that there's an equation that can explain their behavior. So Bernard is, uh, of course, uh, overjoyed by this. He's now got this proof that Byron was there. He knows that uh, Mr. Chatter was dead by 1810. He knows that Byron was on the, the Sidley Park estate in 1809. So everything is lining up. And you can see from his point of view, it looks like very convincing evidence. We, because we have more information, know that he's missing things, but there's no way that he could know that. And the scene ends with Hannah returning to asking Valentine about whether Thomasina really had this insight into modern mathematics. She says, what I don't understand is why nobody did this feedback thing before, uh, it, this iterated algorithm. It's not like relativity. You don't have to be Einstein. You couldn't see to look before. The electronic calculator was the telesco- what the telescope was for Galileo calculator? There wasn't enough time before. There weren't enough pencils, he flourishes Thomasina's lesson book. This took her, I don't know, how many days, and she hasn't scratched the paintwork. Now she'd only have to press a button, the same button over and over, iteration, a few minutes, and what I've done in a couple of months with only a, uh, a pencil, the calculations would have taken me the rest of my life to do again thousands of pages, tens of thousands, and so boring. You mean she stops because Gus is plucking Valentine's sleeve. Do you mean all right, Gus, I'm coming. Do you mean there was on, that was the only problem? Enough time and paper and the boredom? Uh, and she says No, I'm saying you'd have to have a reason for doing it. Uh, Gus runs out of the room, upset. He hates people shouting. I'm sorry. Valentine starts to follow Gus, but anything else, well, the other thing is you'd have to be insane. well, who do we know who was insane, who wrote thousands and thousands of pages of cabalistic equations? Uh, the the Sidley Hermit. So somehow, we now we've got a mystery. We don't know what happened in the past. Uh, we're trying to put the pieces together and not understanding how they fit. Uh, so much of this play is, is like that, where we see, and sometimes we think we know, and then we get uh, new information changes it. It's very much about the process of of discovery and understanding and seeing how things fit together. Uh, It's it's, it's a very intellectually satisfying play in in that way. Well, that's the end of Act 1. We'll wrap up with Act 2 next time, and I'd like you to pay particular attention to the very long final scene of the play, because unlike so far and through the the next couple of scenes, uh, the, the play kind of ping-pongs back and forth from the past to the present, past to the present, but in the final scene, the past and the present merge together on stage. We see all of it kind of, it's kind of mixing together, and think about why that happens, why the play is doing that, and how it reveals more of these correspondences between the past and the present. So, thank you for your attention, and we will discuss the end of Arcadia next time.